Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Beneath the Vest. <laughs> really? Beneath the screen of the Ultra Critics, Thad. <laughs> uh, it's like, I, I, A, I love our new title. And B, <laughs> it's really difficult for me not to constantly say it in Skeletor voice. Beneath the screen of the Ultra Critics! <laughs> <laughs> You know, I like want that. that on the intro. We're going to talk about <laughs> that later. <laughs> welcome, welcome, audience. Uh, today, our, 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 our topic is going to be special effects. But before we get into that, we have to deal with some very sad news. A beloved character actor uh, by the name of Harry Dean Stanton died yesterday at ninety-one. Well, yesterday from our perspective, but yes. Right. Um, Harry Dean Stanton was a character actor who, if you've never seen. I kind of feel sorry for you. Uh, <laughs> well, A, you've seen him. You you may not know the name, but if you saw his face. <laughs> if you saw his face or heard his voice, he had a very lovely voice. He was also yeah. a, a singer. He played a harmonica a lot in his movies, too. But Cool Hand Luke, uh, as that, I think he brought up um, Twin Peaks. Yeah, he was in uh, he was in the new Twin Peaks, and I, I think before that he was in just Fire Walk with Me, not the actual series. Right. But I'm not I'm not the Lynchian expert. Uh, um, Paris, Texas, the Wim Wenders masterpiece. Uh, of course, Alien. Alien, the movie that everyone probably the movie most people have seen him in. Yeah, uh, most people have likely seen him in Alien and in his like two second walk on role in Avengers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> as the janitor who talks the I guess he's a janitor, whatever he's doing in that yeah. building. Like a security guard or something who talks to Banner after he falls through the building. Son, you got a problem. <laughs> you have a condition. <laughs> um, I first saw him in One Magic Christmas, which is a Christmas movie back when they made Christmas movies that were truly like weird. It was about a, a Christmas angel whose job was to make people love Christmas. It's Oh, I love Christmas movies. <laughs> There's a weird logic to the to like the Hallmark, the Hallmark movie channel style of movie Christmas movies that mainstream yeah. Christmas movies used to have that require just like a complete suspension of like reality because it's there's no way this sort of superstitious mythology can uphold outside of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, but yes, he was, uh, God, he just had a face and a voice that, um, really, I, I, like, he's someone that if you need to define what a character, what being a character actor means, I think is, he's a, a good person to look to. I think, it's not one of the things, like, I, there's a conversation going on, the character actors are a dying breed, the not, it's just that nowadays we just sort of demand a better looking character actor. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, you still have John Goodman, but even John Goodman has lost weight, and I should say. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, yeah. All these, all these people who are are uh, like they keep they keep getting healthier. Damn it! Well, and I didn't mean to say John Goodman lost weight not because of Hollywood. He lost weight because he needed to. But right. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, that was if I recall, that was a joke in uh, in Funny People that they made about Jonah Hill. Like man, I think you were funnier before you lost weight. Um, John Goodman is still awesome. Yes, always and forever. Okay, uh, did you have anything to add about Harry Dean Stanton? Uh, not off the top of my head. Uh, I, like I said, I actually found out about it 
I think just through a Facebook post, so I hadn't really processed it too much yet. I, I need to figure out what movies I need to rewatch in order to properly mourn. Uh, cool Hand Luke is really good if you've never seen that. Absolutely. Um, all right, so to, we're going to be talking about special effects. And um, now, my question to you, Thad, is how important are special effects to the overall movie, in your opinion? Uh, I don't think. Well, I'll, I'll, I can never answer a question with a straight yes or no, right? Uh, or or they are, or they aren't. But I, I think say it wasn't a yes or no question, so that's good <laughs> right. for you. Had you said no. yes or no, I would have been like, "What the hell?" <laughs> uh, but I think the the importance of special effects to a story um, depends a lot on how they're applied or why you're applying them. Exactly. Um, I mean, especially in film, one of the things is, I mean, there there are particular, you know, genres that are, are, are considered like, oh, well, you know, science fiction or horror or whatever are going to need to to be more effects heavy movies or less or whatever. And, and obviously, like that, what you need is going to be different film to film. But I think any time that the effects are a center are, are taking center stage or are being like a, a selling point of a movie I become inherently suspicious. Right. Uh, with rare exception. Uh, and I mean, when we were first talking about doing this episode, the exception is, of course, the first thing that I brought up, which is Muppets. <laughs> of course, Muppets are going to be the star of anything that contains Muppets. Well, uh, <laughs> well that's the special thing about the Muppets, though. It's like, you know it's just felt and ping pong balls cut in half and wires... And yet, because of Henson, Oz, and the others, you you don't ever see them any, as anything other than Kermit, Piggy, Gonzo, Sweetums. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I always leap to Muppets for this this kind of discussion in any context is because I think the Muppets encapsulate a philosophy of effects work that I really appreciate, which is... It, it, they are, especially those older core characters, are the minimum necessary to create that character. Exactly. I mean, Kermit is, for all intents and purposes, a sock puppet. Like they're <laughs> with the like he's got a hinged mouth and he has eyes that don't move, and all the other personality to his face is was just Jim Henson's hand, well, and that was and, it. And that's the thing. Like the human mind only needs a little bit of prompting; it can fill in the rest of the gaps. Absolutely. Um, Not only that, um, the March Brothers. I mm. was in my mid-twenties, early to mid-twenties, and I was watching a movie upstairs with my mother. And my mother just goes, his mustache is painted on. <laughs> and I want you to know, I had been watching the March Brothers for at least five to seven years at that point, probably longer. And it never fucking occurred to me that Groucho Marx had a grease paint mustache. <laughs> because it's all part of the illusion of Groucho Marx. Much like Chico's accent is clearly not from any country, and Harpo doesn't exist in like our plane of existence. But it all helps to achieve this illusion of three almost cartoonish characters. And, like, the mustache was real enough. <laughs> I think real enough is a great word to sh like that. That to me is something that is important to shoot for. And it's, it's one of the things that makes me intensely suspicious of higher and higher definitions 
of uh, of film uh, because I mean I think this is one of the things we started noticing especially when like uh, you know you look at whenever Blu-rays and, and HD DVD came out and you would start to to notice little th- like the the mo- like the way that we perceive motion on film and things like that would change right. Well, that's all because of different settings on the TV that people didn't know about. And True. it was affecting, like, it was too bright or it was smoothing out motion too much. And so it became sort of jarring and disturbing to some degree. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think a lot of that also, uh, to me, reflects the things that, that um, I mean, there, there, there is more of a, a, a I guess, what what is it like a, almost a dreamlike quality to to film that right. if you nudge it too far in one particular direction or other uh it stops working well um and we've talked about this a bit film is akin to magic and yeah. so much that when you buy a ticket to a movie you're making a deal with the filmmaker that yes i know this isn't real Yes, mm. I know you're going to trick me into feeling things that I'm going to believe this is real, but you and I both know that none of this has actually ever happened. Right. And yet, um, the idea of the movie is to trick you into believing that. Much like when you go to a magic show, you know the rabbit's already in the hat. <laughs> or will be in the hat, or he will pull out a rabbit. And sometimes he pulls out something else and you're shocked. But you always look, I'm, know... I'm, I'm contractually obligated not to comment on where the rabbit actually is. I know, I know. But <laughs> you know that it's, he didn't actually pull it out of thin air. There was something to it. Uh, yes. Um, but, I mean, one of the one of the reasons why I, like, I bring up the Muppet thing and, and sort of puppetry in general, uh, especially since I, I like starting there, because more and more when we talk about special effects, people tend to think CGI. Right. Um. And when I, you know, when I think of movies that that hold up, uh, one uh, obviously my my mind immediately goes to my favorite movie of all time, always, which is Ghostbusters. Right. And the way that the creature designs in that movie, and the the effects overall, from the the design of the machines to the 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 ghosts and to the the beams of the proton packs and the sounds and everything, right. sound also is one of those things that is not talked about enough in right. terms of building good special effects. Well, but, it's, it's but, funny. Um, you know David Lynch? Not David Lynch. Uh, David Fincher. <laughs> yeah, Fincher. Yeah, David Fincher. He, he is actually renowned among most directors as being the best director to work with sound. Hmm. Apparently, I did not I did not know that, but that does not surprise me. Well, it's one of the things where, like, visu- I always think of him visually, but it was, I was really sort of shocked to hear, like, reading some interviews with uh, directors like Soltenberg and such, like, he is amazing with sound. Hmm. And it's something I don't think a lot of audience members really notice because you shouldn't. It should be something seamless. Yeah, unless it is something like incredibly iconic, like right. the the sound of a the sound of a lightsaber switching on or the TARDIS right. noise or something like that. Exactly. Uh, most sound design is invisible, much like good effects tend to be invisible, or at least aim for invisibility as, as not drawing attention to the effect, but rather just to do what it's supposed to do well you, you mentioned ghostbusters and it's funny like yeah. the, the effects that don't hold up as well in ghostbusters are the cgi stuff uh like what do you mean well like uh when one of the i guess dogs the monster dog mm. like, there's a scene where he uh he's outside oh. and he lands on the table mm. it's clear that that's cgi'd 
Like you can right, tell. but that, that's that's actually that's not CGI. That'd be claymation that they put in. But okay. I get what you mean. Right. Um, like, no, like little things like that. But it's nothing sort of like so so jarring that it takes you out. Yeah, uh, I I definitely agree. Like the the longer shots of the dogs moving and things like that are always uh, the, those tend to be the ones that hold up the least well. Right. Uh, uh, as opposed like to Jurassic Park. The, yeah. 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 Which also, by the um, well, way, he I, used a lot of practical effects for that. Yeah, yeah. People, there's like a legend that built up around like the computer effects in Jurassic Park, but so much of the stuff that really sticks out in people's minds, especially like the raptor chases and stuff, right. were often people in costumes. <laughs> like, and that's the thing, like, it's real enough, and also Spielberg dims the light enough so you don't see all the details. Yeah. Like, sometimes well, you, actually, hear, you, you hear someone say, the special effects are so good they even hold up in daylight. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, that was one of the things I remember. Really, one of the first times I started to hear about special effects was when the um, the special edition Star Wars movies were coming out because, like, what they updated and things <laughs> like that uh, was something that was talked about a lot. And I don't right. just mean in the the oh, like, you know, yeah, there's a lot of CG stuff that was added. But the things I found most interesting were talking about uh, like the on, in Empire Strikes Back, like the the speeder battle and doing all of this, like the stop motion work and all this stuff in broad like broad white daylight snow all of that which made like a lot of these things harder to hide and like how they did it initially and all these other sorts of things like how they used the cockpits to hide certain things oh, in nice, the, the yeah. yeah so like uh not not it wasn't about the the actual uh, i wasn't as interested in the uh the special edition stuff so much as right. in hearing about the ways that they got around or tried to deal with a lot of that stuff you, you know in the 80s yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the special edition. Uh, the, actually, not so much the special edition, but the prequels later on in this episode. Right. Also, just a little shout-out to people. Uh, this will be one of the few episodes where we will talk about Star Wars. I try not to talk about Star Wars too much because there's literally like 70,000 podcasts dedicated to that. Yeah, because the, the entire internet is already talking about Star Wars constantly. Right, and I want people to realize there were movies made before Star Wars, and even movies made after Star Wars. And that Star Wars itself was made as a pastiche reference to a bunch of older movie series. Exactly. So when people um, say it's just uh, it's derivative, I'm like, yeah, so was the original. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you know, one of the things that, that, that we wanted to start with was talking about good and bad examples of, of special effects that stayed with us. Right. And for me, one of the... the This is a, like the first CGI effect that I remember really pulling me out of a movie um, from one of my favorite movies, which was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Ah, yes. I think I know what scene you're talking about. And the <laughs> when, when Spider-Man... When Uncle Ben dies... Spoiler. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Ben dies. Uh, sorry, spoiler warning. If you've only seen uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming, you might not know. <laughs> well, after Uncle Ben dies, and and Peter like puts on his his crummy wrestler Spider-Man outfit to go and chase down the bad guy, uh, it's uh, it switches to it cl- a clearly at the time even in theater, I, and I saw this in theater seven times, so I am a hundred percent certain that, <laughs> that that it looked like this in the theater. Uh, was a just a very clearly CGI Spider-Man because you could you know just from what the the way the light reflected on the fabric and the skin and all of this. Well, like the way he it, moved and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just very clearly, and not to say there weren't other bits of CGI in the movie, but this was it was close up on his action and yeah. just all of the movements of it were not 
like they either couldn't or like they reached the limit of how they could mask it and it really it just really stuck out at the time in a movie that I otherwise love and that that did a really good blending of CG and of of stunt work But uh, it just like the way that it looked. I mean, I know. So it was very clear that they wanted to show him crawling and have the camera move around and do all this stuff. And it just didn't. uh, It couldn't be covered what they were doing. Uh, And like for me, special effect, since I grew up watching like the first true special effect heavy movie I remember seeing, I think, was King Kong versus Godzilla. Hmm. And I was like eight or nine, so it was all real enough. Right. <laughs> and then you hit that Absolutely. stage where it becomes not real enough, and you're like kind of too cool for it. And so you want to watch something like um, The Fugitive or something. Right. And then you hit the stage where you're like, you know what? They're both kind of cool. There's no reason Wasn't, why. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're paraphrasing Ebert here, aren't you? Uh, Ebert did something similar to this. Uh, his, he loves Gamera, so it basically. Gamera. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, Ebert says something similar. Of like every every movie critic or movie lover goes through stages of cheesy special effects are great. Now the cheesy. Oh wait, and now you know it's what? Good. <laughs> now the cheesy is the only one. You know what? They're both really good. There's no reason why we need to compete on these. Right. But I remember seeing the Jackal in the theaters, which is a horrible movie to begin with. It's a Bruce Willis <laughs> remake of an old older movie about an assassin. And there's a scene where he's on a rooftop, and it is clearly CGI'd in the background. Like, the background is fake. And I just remember, what the hell? You have all this money in this one shot, completely destroys it, because it's like the money shot. He's about to pull off this incredible uh, sniper shot. And you're just sitting there going, that is not a real background behind you. It's not a map painting, it's nothing. It's a CGI'd looking, or like they took a scene from something else and put there. Yeah. It is uh, jarring, and I remember going, how... It was the first time that I truly noticed something so bad it took me out of the movie. At least consciously that it did. I might have been times before that, but that was the first time I was like, okay, I see you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and spring up matte paintings is, is a whole other, like, in terms of... Well, this wasn't a matte the... painting. A matte no, painting no, no, I, I know, but... Finally. I know, but I was I was going I was I was tangenting off of that briefly because okay. it it sort of popped in my head because I mean I I don't being that I I'd seen Indiana Jones a ton of times throughout all stages of my life I will I will never stop watching Indiana Jones movies um, <laughs> but you know there there's that like when you're a kid you don't really think about the fact that that um, that warehouse at the end isn't real right or that the uh, Nazi face melting. Is clearly a claymation, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but it's real even, enough, but, right? But even as an adult, wa- going back and watching those movies, like matte paintings hold up. Oh yeah, like a good matte painting. Like I can look at that. Yeah, I could pull up Raiders of the Lost Ark today and still be <laughs> as affected by that that uh, the Ark being nailed into a crate and wheeled off into you know anonymous shelf disappearing into the middle distance. If you uh, want special, really great special effects, go back and watch some of the silent movies, the Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd movies. Mm. So some of the, like, they do a lot of death-defying stunts, but some of that stuff, while dangerous, it's not nearly as dangerous as you think you are. They're not really dangling off the top of a, a skyscraper. 
but it looks real. Yeah. And uh, once, and you, I mean, this, once you see this how it's help- done with a mixture of camera positions, map paintings, and platforms, it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, and I think one of the great things about um, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, uh, when it, especially when it came out on on ex- extended editions with like miles and miles of special feature content, I think that really introduced a lot of people to kinds of special effects that they weren't aware of in terms of camera positioning, in terms of using perspective, in terms of like meshing together model making with live action, with CGI, you know, so it was all of these classic techniques plus newer techniques. Right. Well, I believe it's called in-camera special effects when they do like all the forced perspective and everything. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah, no, and that's the key. There's a melding there. Hmm. Um... I remember quite vividly um, Bellabet, which is a cocktail movie from the 30s. Yeah, uh, well, it's, it's just the uh, Beauty and the Beast in French. Beauty and the Beast, but... right. It's a French movie. I saw that like two, either that or Orpheus, one of those cocktail movies, mm. about two, three days before I saw Avatar. Mm. Oh, I, I, was, I was wondering why you decided to make that particular comparison, but go because, on. Yeah, no, because I saw it. And I was really kind of blown away by what Cocteau was doing in terms of just practical effects. Absolutely. The uh, the effect when Belle teleports from the castle to back to her family <laughs> the first time, where she, like, me- like melts through a wall. Right. Or, ba- or just the little effect of when she drops the necklace. Like, one of her sisters oh, touches yes. it. It turns into junk, and she drops it, and you see it in a flash changed back to the pearl necklace. Yeah. And then I went to see Avatar, and it was gorgeous, but I knew it was all computers, and I wasn't really, like, it was not really awe-inspiring, because also the story was awful. And I think that's when we need to get <laughs> to how much does effects trump story. Right. Because that's all Avatar was. People own it. Like, no one remembers Avatar, but it's one of the highest grossing movies. Like, it's never brought up in any conversation about movies that changed or did anything. It's just brought up in your the only, about... the only time Avatar is... The only time Avatar is brought up now is when people are like, he's making... Oh, yeah, he's making more of those. Yes! <laughs> well, and part of that is because Cameron made a big deal about... I, the special effects won around... When I won, I came up with the idea, so I waited over a decade for yeah. the special effects to come up to part of my imagination. And mm. I'm like, you know, Jacques Cousteau just did it. He just figured it out. <laughs> now, then, no, not Jacques Cousteau, uh, Couteau, uh, Cocteau. I say, I say, well, I'm I'm I say sure, the sure other one because Cameron was busy basically revolutionizing deep sea exploration, so he wasn't exactly sitting on his laurels, but still. Right. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, I mean to be fair, Avatar is very pretty. Definitely. It is, but, but the wh- only thing I remember why? about Avatar is the weird tail sex in Unobtainium. Yeah, uh, the fact that they literally used Unobtainium <laughs> <laughs> is maybe my favorite thing about that movie. <laughs> I mean, to some degree, if you were trying to write a bad movie, that's but that's what you would go for. It's like, what if I called the MacGuffin? What if I called it the MacGuffin MacGuffin? Yes! That is a Sharknado choice right there. That is leaning (laughs) into the the bad writing. (laughs) And I can't even, like, I don't even remember the name of the douchebag company man 
in that movie because when I think of him, I always imagine Paul Reiser from Aliens. <laughs> that That's such a better movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, but let's not devolve too much into to shitting on James Cameron. <laughs> but no, but the idea that having a will completely all that CGI and still not having enough. It'd be like a flashy magician, like showing mm. you something you've never seen before, but the trick isn't that spectacular. Right. It'd be uh, like, but, hey, but look at me, this... I'm going to make this quarter disappear. But he does it in a way that's like, but he uses all these little tricks and tools, and you're like, it's still just a quarter disappearing. I've seen that. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't know, especially for Avatar, I think there there's, looking at the way that the the effects were the selling point of the movie. Right. Like, in terms of just the the hype building up to it, I don't remember a lot of it being about what the movie was going to be about. Well, yeah, so we take Jurassic Park. Special effects that still hold up today, by the way. Mm. And yet, what works is not just the special effects, it's the story. The special effects are a tool that Spielberg uses to help ramp up the the tension, but he also uses light, sound, characters who have arcs, yeah, and, and we characters who characters who we remember. Right. Um, I mean, I've seen essays devoted to how awesome Ariana Richards' character, who played the, I think, Lexi, the little girl, <laughs> because yeah. she was a little girl who loved science, and we don't get those in movies very often. Yeah. Uh, and and I mean, obviously, the uh, uh, the character of Ian Malcolm is, of course, universally loved. For, because Jeff Goldblum is amazing, Buckaroo yeah. right? Um <laughs> For basically being Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> well, and like, here's the thing. Like, credit Spielberg, what credit is due. He created the ultimate monster for children. Because as a child, the one thing that protects you is the light and the door. And he created a monster that could turn off the light and open the door. <laughs> oh, I had not thought of it that way before. <laughs> I was still, like, the one thing that, like, kept me safe, I was terrified. I couldn't, like, I needed to sleep with the light on, and I just kept staring at the door because the monster could get in. There was nothing that could stop me. All we need now is a monster that actually is the covers that you're hiding under. <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, wait, we have that. Deathbed. The bed that eats people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was gonna, I thought you were gonna go for the T-1000, but the deathbed is a deep cut. <laughs> Yes. Um, but I think, I don't know, go, going back to, to like what role effects play, uh, and I mean, one of the questions that, that we were sort of uh, moving toward is, is that, that question of, of effects versus story uh, and, do a, and do or can effects trump story. And I think, it, I think one of the things that, that comes up in my head when I think about the way that effect, uh, any kind of special effects, whether it's CG or anything else, uh, the way that they're used is, is, is I think of this problem that I see a lot or, or that I usually think of in terms of comic books because that's you know where I, I initially think of these things. Right. Uh, and that's, that's the fact that it's far, far easier for bad art or for bad effects to ruin or to damage a good story than it is for a good story to to get past the the bad effects or the bad art. Uh, like if a, if a comic is really ugly, even if it's a good story, it makes it hard to read. Right. And That's true. yeah, this, this this goes to uh, another unsung hero movies the editor. Mm, absolutely. 
the more you learn about editing, the more you start to realize a lot of modern movies are edited horribly. But <laughs> the, the, I think part of the reason is filmmakers or directors become in love with the special effects because these yeah. are, we, we have a generation of filmmakers that grew up on movies like we did. Mm. And so when it comes to special effects, they geek out and they really love, like, they get to work with the greats like Rick Baker and some. And they, they get to like, geek out and like, oh my god, I want to show this in all its glory. And sometimes special effects works best when you only get a glimpse of it. Mm. Like, Alien works so effectively because we don't see much of the alien. Right. In fact, we don't see it for uh. most of the movie. <laughs> And I think, well, I think in terms of editing, I think one of the, uh, a great example of how crucial an editor is, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest action movie to come out this decade, Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. That's um, a good example. Yeah. Because like that, A, that movie was, a, the they apparently shot an obscene amount. Oh, yeah. Um, and the, uh, the editor. So Miller. Uh, like had his own sort of Man of La Mancha moment making this movie in terms of like the amount of utter horseshit ecology uh, financially just like the amount of weather and bullshit he had to deal with producers and the drama of having such a large cast and the intensity of the movie it's a miracle this thing got made yeah Uh, and uh, I know that that, uh, Margaret 6L however you say her name uh she's she's worked with miller i think a few times before right. um but like just the and she's one of the people that i i hear about the most whenever i read about like behind the scenes stuff like the the amount of you know taking all of this footage and all these spectacular scenes uh and, and also just the relationship between the camera work and how they plan particular shots and the uh for the editor right. uh for example one of the one of the um things i remember reading or or maybe i heard it in a video I, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head but was talking about how like the the one of the fight scenes uh between the first the fight scene between max and furiosa was shot in a way that that tried to keep the action very centered all the time to give the editor a lot of freedom in where to to match things together or what what to you know where to cut and what to cut to and those sorts of things right that well, if no. you if you don't if you don't plan and your your shots for these kinds of things, then then it limits a lot of how things get to be edited at all. Well, yeah, no, like, and that's like something like I think a lot of directors maybe because they're losing that sort of the power to do so. Mm. But um, I know uh, John Ford when he was making How Green Is My Valley, which is not a special effects heavy movie, mm. was in danger. He was a constant fear of being pulled off, and so he shot the movie. He didn't do any master shots or establishing shots. He shot mm. the shots he wanted in the movie. So the editor, because back then the editor and the director didn't really normally work together. Right. So the editor had no choice but to put it in, put in the shots that he wanted. Give give them no other leeway. Give them no other like extras or anything. That's the only shot you get. That's the best take we gave you. You have to use that. Interesting. Right. Like, and it's way. And it's one of the things I've noticed is, like, directors more and more are having trouble dealing with studio interference and dealing with sort of practical interruptions. Like, movie, like one of the things with CGI is that it happens is you're able to overcome, 
the little annoying things that happen. If something breaks down, they just replace it. Or yeah. if it's raining, you can just CGI out the rain. It's like there's more and more is becoming le- because creativity comes from conflict to some degree. Right. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons is why I always. That's one of the reasons I always like to to use the example of Bruce the shark from Jaws. Right. Uh, because a lot like good filmmaking is often about overcoming limitations and often makes it way better when you find good ways to do that. Right, and like just the and also helps with problem solving. Hmm. And when that helps with problem solving in one area, you can figure out how to problem solve another area, like script wise or maybe how to deal with something. Like, oh, you know what? I just dealt with this dude with actual people. I can use this to like with the PR guy or something, or with the studio exec who thinks and needs more giant spiders. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and like, there are, like there are people like I've heard stories of directors who are like able to convince the studio exec out of the argument they came in with simply because they learned mm. how to do it with because they actually had hands-on experience with dealing with a fuck up from an animatronic. They're like, okay, okay, how can I? Okay, I'll just explain it to him. It's going to cost money. Oh, you don't want me to do that? Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> like they, they, they learn nice. how to deal with things because they now know practically, I can do that, but it's going to cost more money. And the one thing every producer hates yeah. to hear is, oh, well, don't, don't, don't mind that. Okay, I won't. Or well, they know uh, how to one, get more money. In terms of that, like going, knowing... This is going to be a really great crowd-pleasing moment. You can use it in the trailers. Here, here, here's more money. Here, here. Nice. Uh, yeah, shooting for those trailer moments. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that navigate like the system that way. I think is one of those things we uh, don't often hear people talk about in terms of what goes on behind the scenes. But I think one of the if I were looking for various things to blame for habits in effects or or other sorts of things that I like th- things to blame for, let's say the the state of things uh, in terms of overuse or or over reliance on certain types of effects. Uh, I think one of the things is is how like how separated effects making has become. Exactly. In terms of uh, you know, if, like you can like if you're if you're doing a lot of computer effects, then those things will often be done in like a different part of the country yeah, than where the, the film is being made. Without the director's real input or knowledge, like oftentimes. Yeah, the knowledge thing I think is. Like, no, oftentimes ahead. he won't see the CGI finish effect until the premiere, and he'll be like, "Oh, that's really awesome." Yeah, and I think the the knowledge thing in turn is central to who my favorite modern uh, effects utilizing director is, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, because del Toro came from doing his own special effects, right. uh, like he he designed both in, in terms of just drawing things and storyboarding them out, but also when he was making short films, when he was making his early films, he was making things himself. Right, well, not and only he that. he had a very... So, so he... Hmm. He works with the designer. He works with the special effects people. He goes out of his way to give them concept ideas to work with. Yeah. And because of that, because he came from that, he knows how to light it and how to shoot it to make it look beautiful and, as we've said, real enough to the eye... Right. That it has and I mean, computer, effect. computer effects Computer effects are not absent from his films. No. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, oh, no, only only 100% practical or get right. the fuck out. Uh, <laughs> but he, like you said, like he, he's a director who very 
very much knows how to plan for and how to mesh these things together. Like it'll be it'll be tactical as he can get to look good. Right. And again, like the editing and thing is knowing I think when that... to cut away from the special effect. Right. Uh, and I think the, the magic trick analog can, is... Yeah. When the audience can stare at it too long, they can start to see the cracks in the suit, or they can start to see the strings, and then pulls them out of the movie. So you want just a quick enough flash. Yeah. I think the, the magic trick comparison is, is spot on for that, because most of doing any magic trick is about being aware of audience attention. Right. And how to work with that. And how to control misdirection, and how to, how to get them to focus on what you want them to focus on. Right. Which is one of the which is one of the reasons why I mean I get the very fast paced cutting of action scenes to a certain degree uh, the the sort of shadow of Jason Bourne that continues right. to, to poison action movies to this day <laughs> but um, but at the same time like it's it, it makes sense to like obfuscate and to, to like what's going on in the fights and to make them very frenetic and frantic. but that's not good for every fight and I think this is one of those like this is a great example of people learning a bad lesson. Right, no, because, like, because the Boyne thing is kind of meant to give you the the illusion of phoneticness and, like, what it feels like to be in a fight. That's sort absolutely. of raw chaos. At the same time, uh, going back to John Carpenter's, They Live is one of the most beautifully choreographed fight scenes, and it's basically and... one look. It's a couple of dicks. Right, it is two people who know how to, to fake fight over doing the most it. mundane thing about putting a sunglasses. <laughs> Never have two men fought so hard for the most tiniest thing. Uh, well, one of them thinks it's a very tiny thing, but the <laughs> other one knows that it is the difference between, uh, you know, knowing what is going on with alien control of the of the world. So it is you know. the definition of being woke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, this is, this needs to be, I think we need to start, like, a trend of, um, like, how, how like, right-wing crazy people refer to being red-pilled as the, the same behind things. We need, to, we need to start referring to being woke as being sunglasses. <laughs> I don't know if we can make that catch on, because verbally and literally, audio-wise, that sounds horrible. Shut up. It's awesome. But yes, yes. Okay, go, let's m- mention George Lucas's The Pickle Let us move on. Because the prequel trilogies, special effects-wise, are amazing. But the problem is, they look <laughs> so good that clearly they're fake. And well, it's, on, it's not just that. Well, no, no, uh, they look ahead. so shiny. Okay, when you watch the original trilogy, hmm. there's a feeling that it's real, like you like when you're on the Death Star. There's a feeling that it looks like there's a maintenance staff because it's real enough. Yeah. There's the the trash can monster. It's weird, but it's fun to be like, well, someone had to bring that on. Like, th- like right. there had to be a meeting about do we need a trash monster? How are we gonna well, play? It's, it's I don't I disagree actually. I've always assumed that those kinds of trash monsters are just a fact of building space stations. Like well, that's they, what I mean. Like, like there's like you know, there's they, a, a they, sort of randomness to it that it feels like there's a bureaucracy right whereas uh, the other well, ones they don't feel they don't feel i don't want to say dirty but they don't they just they're too clean they absolutely too shiny. Her. right and well, because it's the... so shiny and because it's so special effects laden 
there's no room for like fun little extra behavior in the background. Yeah. And I mean, when I think of uh, one of the things I was thinking of is not just in terms of effects, but just in terms of items that have been designed, uh, which exactly. is, still, I mean, still special, but like fictional items that I love. And one of my favorite fictional items, there's a long list of them, but um, <laughs> my favorite lightsaber is Obi-Wan Kenobi's lightsaber from the first Star Wars movie, which I, of course, found out years later as I started getting interested in props and where they come from, that it it's made of, like, faucet drains and a grenade and a flash handle and all this other stuff. Right. Uh, and it's and because these are all real items and it's made from real items, it gives it something. Like, right. it, off the gate, it, it feels realer than the... If you look at Obi-Wan's lightsaber in the prequels in, in Phantom Menace, it's this very slickly put together and right. clean lines and well-machined, and it looks like an action figure thing. It, it's visually pleasing, but... It's too, it's not real enough. Like, it's like, it's too real. It's not, it doesn't have the clunky or the functionality of an actual item. Yeah, and I mean, you know me. I will intermittently spend way too much money on, <laughs> on uh, I, I have over here on my desk, uh, you've met it, my Rocketeer helmet here. I was there when uh, I, ta- I, was, I tried to talk you out of buying that because you said specifically, I don't have the money for this. And then I bought it anyway. Um... <laughs> But also, I have here in my hand um, the my uh, Tomenosuke um, Blade Runner blaster. It is uh, it is one of the most accurate th- uh, re- reproductions you can get of this, and it's such like it's made from gun parts and some custom parts and other stuff. But it's it's great because of just that realness to it. Right. The, it's got serial numbers and stuff from the pieces that it was made of. Right. And, you know, you look at Solo's blaster, which was made of, I mean, it was made of a, a like a, a knockoff of a Mauser and a bunch of other stuff added onto it. But I feel like that was one of the things, especially early on, one of the things I liked visually about Star Wars over Star Trek. Right. Uh, and I mean, granted, Star Trek, it's a post-scarcity future and all that stuff. And, and right. as an adult, I can make different arguments for why they make that choice. But still, that <laughs> real, like... Things that are just slammed together from model kits or from a bunch of other props and stuff like that, I, I want to say, like, they have a weight to them. They they seem like they have a weight and a history. Well, A, you know, it because you're actually holding them. Yeah. And B, it comes from the fact that as a child, we played with things, we cobbled together things ourselves. And so I think right. it calls back, memory-wise and psychological-wise, to that moment of creativity that we can relate to yeah. and inspires imagination in us. Mm. I think also going back to what I was trying to get to, like when you have a mass, like a large group, a scene that requires a lot of people in it. Yeah. A lot of times you have extras, but with CGI, you can just throw them in and there's a program that Peter Jackson uses in which you can just create an army and it behaves like an actual army. Right. The problem is then you lose the little bits of funny business that extras do to try too hard to be noticed. (laughs) Right. One of the things that I love about Force Awakens are background bits. Like there's a moment in Force Awakens where Kylo Ren is throwing a temper tantrum. And you see the stormtroopers. And you see the lightsaber cut through the wall. And I'm like, and we're moving away. Just turn around and walk away. It's not necessary, but it gives you the illusion that... There are people on the Death Star, and there is 
quote unquote drama that there is a hierarchy and they're like yeah. you know what I'm not gonna deal with this I'm almost off the clock I am no mood to fill out this paperwork <laughs> I think lived in this especially right. when you're creating like worlds from the ground up like Star Wars um, you know the, the being able to create something fictional that as lived in as a real place feels and that was part of the problem and with I think that, that yeah like the, like the I, lo- I, I in four parts of Valerian, but yes. <laughs> special effects in Valerian, I don't think... I think probably the biggest part of Valerian is the story itself, but because the special right. effects are the best part of the story, not so much because they look good, but because he used the special effects to tell a visual story. It's not just, look at right. what I can do, it's, look what you can do with this. Because right. I think a lot of uh, filmmakers think... just use special effects as stand-ins for storytelling as opposed to actually moving the story forward. Yeah, I would. St- I mean, I would still say in terms of... Because uh, I, I was real, I, I was and I still am more critical of Valerian than I want to be. Uh, but especially... And I think part of that is also if you watch it side by side with Fifth Element, there's no ah. contest. Fifth Element is better. <laughs> Um, and I, I feel like in a lot of ways it's, it's for a similar reason. Like it's, it has even more of that, like lived in fleshed out feel. Right. Absolutely. Whereas... Fifth Element feels like a will. Mm. And it's one of the things, you know, they... you know what, you know, what's kind of a forgotten classic in that regard. What? Uh, Demolition Man. Demolition Man I... does not get the love it is. <laughs> I, I absolutely love the just dumb future that they made that made a perfect kind of like bonkers sense. <laughs> well, not not even to, like there's a scene in Demolition Man. For those of you who haven't seen Demolition Man, Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes in one of the few bad guy roles he ever did. Uh... Stallone and, and Snipe play basically, and like Stallone Stallone is a cop. Snipes is a maniac. Serial killer, bad guy, whatever. It's never really clear why. So, like, he's a bad guy, clearly, but, like, what his aim is. Wesley Snipes plays a supervillain. Basically. And, and that's his entire And In the beginning, Stallone captures him, but Stallone is also such a rogue element that they put him in cryogenic freezing along with Snipes. And then right. in the future, Snipes gets thawed out, so they thaw out Stallone because he's the only one who can catch right. Snipes. <laughs> it's beautiful. You have to see. <laughs> it's the type of action movie that doesn't get made anymore because it's just bad enough. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's it's by all rights it should have been a B movie, but it was a B movie with A list actors all the way down. Uh, like, like uh, even critics were like, this is really fun. It shouldn't be this fun, but it is. Uh, but yeah, it, it had the same, like, it reminds me in a lot of ways of Fifth Element, but not as far in the future. Well, like, um, there's a scene it, in Demolition Man where she, Santa Bullock character is singing commercial jingles, because that's what they have for music now. <laughs> and I'm like, that's YouTube. People do that. People go on YouTube and just go down the old commercial rabbit hole to listen to jingles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, Seriously, I got, I got, I'm, I got I'm not letting go. Devilish your man. It should be. <laughs> um, but yes, 
So where were we? <laughs> we were talking about special effects, uh, like trumping story when they're being used. Essentially, what we what we mentioned with the prequel trilogy, and to some degree Avatar, and basically yeah. with a lot of current movies, is the special effects are so integral to the believability of the film and the character that the story starts to fly by the wayside. Yeah. Um, I honestly think the only reason that the prequels have Defenders and Avatar is essentially forgotten to everyone but James Cameron is solely because our entire culture had a prior investment in that universe with Star Wars. And that is the only reason. (laughs) Not only that, but some of the things they did was so angry inducing to a certain sect of nerds well, yeah. that it has become it's grown in legend was Avatar is original so called <laughs> <laughs> not really but James Cameron thought it was apparently <laughs> but like special effects wise it was just like the story itself is so generic that it was a huge deal when it came out people killed themselves over this movie remember <laughs> yeah but it didn't last in the consciousness because it didn't inspire anything in the larger populace because it never played with you. It was too busy trying to impress you. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't do anything. There, there, there was no time for anything to be surprising or sort of like that, that kind of background lived in amusing stuff. Uh, it was just... Let's let's focus on the most beautifully rendered generic uh, story that we could that we can. <laughs> well, and all that also that came out back when they were trying real like they really still are, but this is back when they were really trying to convince us that 3D was a new technology, <laughs> not just some crappy thing that they had in the 50s that they were just bringing back. <laughs> right. And they were trying really, and very few movies have actually ever done anything truly spectacular with 3D, even to this day. IMAX yeah, is one really of the... the thing that developed from that period as something that is a lasting way of looking at movies. Honestly, the only movie that right now um, I can think of that I wish I could see in 3D again is Doctor Strange. That's the, well, the Doctor... only one whose effects I, I thought were so awesome in 3D that I, I miss them. I saw them in 3D, and Doctor Strange is a weird case because it's another movie that doesn't stick in the mind as much as when you, the longer you move on. Like, the special effects were great, and the story's decent. It's not a bad movie. It's just there's something missing. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of an outlier on that one just because I, I have a, a deep and abiding love for Doctor Strange right. uh, oh. as a comic book character. But Although, yeah, it will... I do love how he defeated the villain. That was like, as... as from a writing standpoint, so rarely do I see a character defeat the villain with how he like with his actual knowledge base and set of skills. Yeah, and and in particular, um, having to confront the thing that he never wanted to do. So exactly. I'm going to defeat I'm going to defeat you by failing for eternity. <laughs> Precisely, it was like from a writing standpoint, I was like, you know what? Everything else I can criticize, but that was beautiful. I'm sorry. I'd... From a writing standpoint, that was like the one thing you guys did that I've never like really. Actually, well. there's there's two writing things I love in Doctor Strange. I love that resolution, and I love the fact that he and Christine don't get back together. Uh, she like she kisses him on the cheek, and right. there's like, and then he goes off to do Doctor Strange stuff, and that's it. 
Christine, but, but anyway, part of is... my issue with the movie, I wish there was more Christine because she's kind of just there. Yeah, she she clearly could have been used a lot better. Anyway, this is this is not a Doctor Strange show though. That's no, uh, no, I, me- but... I merely brought it up because it's the it is literally the only example I can think of of a movie that I wish I could see in 3D specifically again. Well, I just saw American Assassin. Hmm. I just saw American Assassin. Yeah, yeah. And it's an action movie, and it makes you pine for the old action movies that use practical effects. Because, oh, in what way? Well, okay. You've you've seen Copa, right? Uh, yeah, not for a while, but okay. uh, Stallone, I, I recall. The opening scene of Cobra is this really sort of gorgeously stylized shot with lights and fog from the Pepsi machine. <laughs> and it's it's a bad movie, but it's beautifully bad. And then you watch something like um, American Assassin, and like the special effects are good and the fighting's alright, but I'm like, there's nothing here. There's like, there's like special effects have reached the problem that we always complain about in action movies. Of you need more than the explosion of fight scenes. You need something to connect, to connect us to the next set piece. Right. It, and I feel like special effects so have ubiquitous. Right. Especially since we've gotten so good at them, it's like okay, I need more than just you existing. Like if I go see see a three hundred and fifty million dollar movie and the special effects mm. are great. I almost never tell you how great the special effects are in, are in the review because, no shit, they better be great. $350 million was spent. It's yeah, notable it's a given. If, if the special effects were awful. Mm. Uh, yeah, like the, the, the lack of things that stick in the mind, like even, even with, again, like, uh, like you said, movies that I really like that are huge and expensive and flashy. Like there's not a lot when I, when I sit around thinking about Marvel movies, I don't think a lot about like the Avengers, for example. Uh, cause there's, there's not really a lot to stick with me in terms of the action. Right. Like what works uh, in the Avengers is because of what it did. Right. Uh, yeah. The character relations, the the dialogue and things like that. And, I mean, yeah, there, there are a few effect shots that are spectacular, like anything involving the Hulk. Right, but, but... Not, not, not something I remember as, oh, my God, you have to go see it because of the special effect. Right. Right. And pe- people saw that movie because they really liked well, well, the movie itself, not because of the the decorative outliers. Yeah. And also because we are now contractually obligated to watch every Marvel movie forever. Yes, and DC movie, and I think Sony movies. No, not Sony movies. No one cares. Um, (laughs) But no, it's like, and it's one of the things where, like, watching Superman, Mm. the old Christopher Christopher, uh, Richard Donner Superman, the tagline, Mm. I think, bespeaks what the challenge for a filmmaker should be. You will believe a man can fly. And it's not referencing to how good the special effects is, but referencing in your belief in the character of Superman. And, like, quite honestly, uh, that is, they all, like, for one brief, beautiful moment in Man of Steel, like, when he first puts on the Superman costume and is jumping around and learning to fly, I almost got there. But then it (laughs) went back, but then it went back to being Man of Steel. Right. Uh, (laughs) But like that's what the like like the special effects. Oddly enough, not really that dated because he used a lot of practical practical effects. If right. it is if there is dated, it's how the camera how he uses the editing tricks and everything. Yeah. Uh, but I think 
we don't have time to get to the last thing on uh, on our agenda about um, talking about how to watch old movies, but we'll set that aside. Well, I think I think that's a, a bigger topic. Like, I think that that could be an episode worthy topic is yeah, talking about it's a approaches, much broader topic about how to approaches watch old to older movies and right. yeah. But no, it's like I think Superman is a is a movie that has cast such a shadow that we're still trying to get out from under. Mm. Because as you've, as we've talked about, it's like we keep trying to remake that Superman movie. Like Zod, but, uh, Zod really wasn't well. in the comics, was he? <laughs> Oh yeah, no. Zod was Zod's a Zod's a comic book villain, but he's okay. not nearly as as prevalent as he is in the movie. <laughs> Even Smallville brought him in for crying out loud. It's like, yeah, the one uh, Superman villain anyone knows who's not a Superman fanatic is Zod. Right, but Zod is also the villain that you choose for the laziest possible reason because exactly. you want because you want to have a punch fight with Superman, and not a lot of people can deal with that. Exactly. Um, but. So, in conclusion, quite uh, quite honestly, if I if I were gonna write a, if I were gonna write a Superman movie, it would be a, a movie with no super strong uh, threat. Well, and that's the thing. Like that's a Superman movie. I think a lot of people want to see, but it's not the one that's going to get financed by any studio. Right, because we you just can't, talked about no, a movie, well, basically a two-hour my dinner with Andre, in which there's no no explosions or punching. <laughs> Although I now desperately want to yes. see a two-hour. Henry Cavill, Ben Affleck, My Dinner with Andre superhero movie. Uh, actually, no. I think uh, I think it should uh, instead of having Ben Affleck, he should be replaced with Wallace Shawn. Clearly, <laughs> the, the truly the only Lex Luthor that anyone should have gone with. <laughs> oh my God! I would watch that. I know, right? Wallace Shawn as Lex Luthor. Please, someone is. <laughs> Someone at DC or Warner Brothers, tell me you're listening. Yes, our our, our major fans at uh, at Warner Brothers DC who are clearly listening. Um. <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing. All right, we got to wrap this up. Thank we you should. How, how about we just say next time we talk, we branch off into talking about uh, approaches to classic movies. I think that's a, a good thing to shoot for for next uh, next episode. That's fine. I'm going to tell the audience as well. I guess for the next episode, we're going to be talking about how to approach classic movies, how to watch them and understand when to laugh and when not. That's largely a subjective thing, but there is such a thing as being a dick. Yeah. Uh, being a dick is punishable by uh, death, if I recall. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really harsh punishment, we understand, but you are being a dick. Uh, make sure to review and like us on iTunes. Listen to the other podcasts from the Fundamentals, such as the Fundamentalists, Underbashed Book Snobbery, Book Snobbery, Ladies First. Um, you can check me out on my social media, on my Instagram, on my Twitter, all under J Sherman Fiction. You can check me out on my Facebook, just under my name, Thad. You look. Uh, where can they find you? Uh, uh, I, I, I will establish a uh, a Twitter presence in the next couple of weeks. So next time I will tell you I can be found, finally, begrudgingly. You can find that, <laughs> if you look hard enough, in the world. Much like right. Wallo, it's a game you have to play. But unlike I can be, Wallo, be found you will in, not be in the same outfit. I can be found in central Illinois. I'm pretty tall, but uh, it's, it's really white here, so I blend in pretty easily. Unlike Wallo, um, he will more than likely be flipping you off, too. So... <laughs> Thank you very much for your kind attention, and we will see you in future times.